Uh, Father God, I just pray um, simply for this morning that whatever one word, one phrase, one sentence, whatever that message is that you want to get across to each and every person, uh, I believe that you can get a different message across to each and every person, the message that they need to hear. And I just pray that you would work this morning and that you would communicate in that way and that uh, we would have heard from you. And we pray that in Christ's name. If you turn in your Bible to Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter uh, 13. We're in our parables series, series on the parables. And we've got a short one today. So Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. And uh, we've got it on the screen if you don't have a, a Bible with you this morning. So I'll just read through it. And it says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. And that's pretty much the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And it's in a couplet form. And, and the Bible, all through the Scripture and the, and the Jewish people, were really big on this. And so if you read the Psalms or the Proverbs, a lot of things are stated. Remember, it's an oral culture. And so it would be stated, then it would be just changed around, and the exact same thing would be restated again, the synonym almost. Does that make sense? And so it's couplets. And so all through the Proverbs and the Psalms, you see the same thing being underscored twice. And what Jesus does here is he says one basic thing, and he says it two different ways, driving at one message. And it's this. It's the thing that was being sought after, that it was of, of the greatest value, was found. And everything else was then sold or traded so that that individual with the field or with the pearl of great price could attain the thing that it was of the greatest value. That's the simple message. And so it's kind of interesting as you study through this parable and, and check commentaries and all sorts of different things, um, it's one of the very few parables that actually doesn't have a lot of different theories behind how to interpret it. It's really straightforward. It's, it's ridiculously simple. You, you can't write a whole book on this and kind of just change the meaning or get to deeper levels of meaning. You can only illustrate the meaning that is obvious and that is clear and that is already there. And that's that we take all that we have and we sell that or trade that to gain the one thing that we really need and the one thing that we really desire, the thing of greatest value, and that's the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's a, it's a message that's echoed all throughout Scripture. And so what I want to do is just take and show you a little bit that this parable, Jesus is putting into kind of a little poem form what has always been true of God's people, what has always been the driving reality, the thing required of them if they were going to have this relationship with God. And so if you go all the way back to Abraham, you see an interesting thing in the story of Abraham back in Genesis. And Abraham is tested by God in chapter 22. And you might be familiar with the story, but God says to Abraham to take this one and only son that he'd been promised, that he'd waited for all these years, to take that son and to go up to a mountain and to sacrifice him. And so in verse 3, what's really interesting, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Why did he get up early? Because I think he was like running away from his wife. 
I mean, how do you tell your wife, oh, by the way, um, I'll be back by dinner and this is what I'm going to do. I think he got up early and he snuck away. And why do I think that? Um, because he doesn't tell any of his servants or even his son what, what he's really up to. They get all the way to the mountain and his son says, um, what are we going to sacrifice? His son doesn't know what the plan is here. I don't think he would have necessarily gone along with the plan. But he doesn't know what the plan is. Abraham's not telling anyone. God's testing him and saying, take all that you have. Everything. And you go give it to me and trust me. And so Abraham does. I read a book that changed, radically changed my view of faith. And it was a book by the Danish philosopher uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. And the whole book is on this story of Abraham. And it talks about faith because what Kierkegaard is saying is sometimes God asks you to do things that won't make sense to anybody else. When God said to Abraham, take your son and go kill him, there's no one that Abraham could explain that to that it would make sense to. It's not going to make sense to his wife who's been waiting and praying for this son. It's not going to make sense to anyone else in his culture. You know, you just don't go and sacrifice your own kids. There's no ethical system that like, would hold that up as a right thing to do. And so there's really nobody he can tell this to or explain it to that's going to go, oh, that makes sense, Abraham. I can see that that's good and wise. It only makes sense to him because he's the only one that God talked to. So he doesn't share it with anyone. He just goes and he walks out in obedience and is willing to do this thing. And Kierkegaard really unpacks this and says, what does that look like? Um, to do what makes sense only if God has asked you to do it. It doesn't make sense by common wisdom. It doesn't make sense by common sense. It doesn't make sense by ethical systems of reasoning. The culture, the society, the community is not going to uphold it. It only makes sense if God says to go do it. And I think some of you that were Christians in college or high school uh, where it wasn't the thing to, to be with the culture or the community, or you traded in a good career to go and do something different because you felt like God was calling you that way, you know what that feels like. You can't explain it to anyone else. It's not going to make sense to anyone else. It only makes sense because God has called you to leave this and to go do something else. And so we see even with Abraham, when he's being tested, God's really trying to see, are you going to let go of the thing that's most valuable? And put me above that. When we move along, I think it's interesting in the parable, the, uh, not the parable, but the story of the rich young man. This man comes to Jesus, and if you remember the story, he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, obey the commands. He says, well, I've been doing that. And Jesus says, okay, one more thing. And he's going to test him just like God tested Abraham. He said, go take everything that you have, all that value, and sell it. Give it to the poor. Will you do that to guarantee that you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Will you, will you trade that for something more valuable? And he really puts it to the guy, and the guy can't really hang with that. And so he walks away, hanging his head, and he's sad. And we talk about that story a lot, but here's, I think, what's even more interesting is how it ends. And here's the back end of that story when Jesus says, you know, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because he's gonna have such, he or she's going to have such a hard time letting go of all this other stuff. He says, man, it's so hard for somebody with so much to let go of it or to give it away. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. And so I... 
I think you need to hear that little snippet right now, and we're going to move on. But this whole trading everything so that you can get something of greater value is not something that, that you have to do with human strength. That you can lean hard on God and say, God, help me. Um, because with him it's possible. And it continues. And Peter answers Jesus and says, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are last first will be last and many who are last will be first. Okay, so a couple things. Uh, here's what Peter's saying. Peter's coming and saying, okay, you're saying that people need to leave everything to grab hold of this. Hey, Jesus, we've done that. You walked up on the sandy beach of, of the Sea of Galilee, and we were tending our nets. We were working hard. We had our families. We had our jobs. We had our reputations. And, and in one instant, you said, come and follow me. And it was ridiculous. No one was going to understand it. It's like the Abraham thing. And in fear and trembling, we left that stuff, and we came and followed you. We did that, Jesus. So what's the upshot of that? And Jesus says, don't you get it? You did what's right, and it's going to be given back to you. When you get to heaven, um, it is going to be all worth it. All worth it. Now, what he doesn't say is this. He doesn't say you made a good investment, you sold your stocks over here, and you put your stock money into real estate, and you bought low, now it's high, and look at all the money you made in earth. It's, God isn't some grand investment counselor on an earthly level. There's a thing called the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, and what it basically is, if you see it when you're flipping channels on TV or something, are people telling you, give everything, because if you give all your money away, then God's going to bless you, and pretty soon you're going to win the lottery, and you're going to win all these amazing things, and your life will just explode with blessing of worldly stuff. Now, I have a real problem, because um, I'm as down on Christianity or church as anyone I know, which really sets up a conflict of interest, right? And, and here's what I've learned. It's really easy to just be down on church or Christianity just wholesale and just say, I don't like it or I have problems with it, just wholesale. But you can't love what you criticize. And God has told us we're supposed to love the bride of Christ, the church. And we're supposed to love and serve and encourage one another, um, the people that are in our family, the other Christians that are in our family. So when we criticize, we have to criticize the way Jesus did. And we criticize things that are untrue or wrong. And we narrow it down to that one thing. We don't just blow everything up. And so our generation, my generation, has got to learn not to just wholesale criticize the church. We've got to find where the problems are and criticize those things because that's constructive. God, let that thing change. Now, the health and wealth gospel, um, it sucks. Okay? Because here's what it's basically saying. It's saying, um, take all your worldly stuff and give it to God so that you can get more worldly stuff. And it, it makes no sense at all. And Jesus is saying, no, you get rid of the worldly stuff because what you really want is the, the heavenly stuff, the spiritual stuff. You're not even supposed to be thinking about the worldly stuff. 
God isn't just a vending machine. You, you put this in and then you're going to get back tenfold of worldly things. It, it's making the world or yourself or money the God again. And when God says, give it all away and grab me because I'm of greater value, period. And you get it right, period. And if, and if you get blessed in life, if your house is bigger or small, it doesn't matter. What really matters is just that you have this one thing. And so the health and wealth gospel, it's, it's horrible. I think it totally perverts it. Here's an interesting thing in that passage when Peter says we've left all. Listen to what Jesus says to him. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, at the end of the age, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now listen to this, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times more. Jesus is saying, if you've left behind your family, your husband, or your wife, or your children, and that's a real odd thing, isn't it? Because isn't it the Bible that tells us we're supposed to value our children and value our family? That, that marriage is in some sense a picture of Jesus and the church, what that relationship looks like? So, how can we throw that away? And what Jesus is, is saying is, no, you don't throw that away, but, but don't make the mistake that a lot of Christians today make or a lot of ministries make where we take something that God says is good, we get excited about it, and then we put it on the throne and we worship it. And it's marriage at all costs or kids at all costs. And it's not that those things are valuable because God makes them valuable. It's we take them and make them valuable in and of themselves and we, we subordinate God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you take these things and, and get it right, that's where the blessings can come from. God always has to be on the throne. God is always the most important. And it doesn't matter what the thing is, you can't exalt that and make it greater in value, even if it's something that God has said is valuable. God always has to remain at the center. And so it's a fascinating thing. We really have to ask ourselves, do we sometimes get it wrong by taking something that God says is good and grabbing hold of that instead of grabbing hold of God? That our sense of worth and our sense of security comes in, I've got this incredibly biblical Christian marriage, whatever the heck that is, um, instead of grabbing hold of God and saying, I've got a God that saves me by grace and I'm a sinner and I need that and there's no other way to him but by my Savior through the faith that I have that his grace is enough. And so what are we clinging to? What have we sold everything to grab hold of? And it's not a good thing. We need the best thing. So here's where it comes down um, to explain it. I think this will be helpful. We're going to talk about philosophy just a little bit. But there's two different philosophical systems in the West, and I'll make it big. Hopefully you can read it. The philosophical system we operate under is called either or. Either, that's taking too long. All right, either or. Okay, and basically the law of non-contradiction is king here. Something both can't be true and not true at the same time. Things can't contradict themselves. I, I can't both be here in Bend, Oregon right now and in China at the same time. It, it can't happen. It's either one or it's the other. In the East, they operated for a long time under a philosophical system called both and. And in the East, it was, uh, we don't see a problem with contradiction. Maybe you could be here and in China at the same time. Who knows? 
Um, laws of nature aren't fixed. They can be capricious. So what is one day might not necessarily be the next day. Or I can hold this truth and this truth together even though these things are incompatible. And there's not a problem with it. And, and a lot of people will argue that's why the scientific revolution started in the West because um, the scientists believed in fixed laws of the universe that were the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and they were able to build on that. And it all came from this system of logic. Now what's really interesting is a philosopher by the name of, a Christian philosopher by the name of Ravi Zacharias tells this great story. And he was lecturing at a school, and Ravi Zacharias was born in India and grew up uh, as a Hindu that holds both hands. And so if you're in India and in the Hindu world, there's, there's thousands of gods. And so you can preach Christ and someone will say, hey, that's great. Let me add that to the, the, the deck that I have in my hand or, you know, the, the card of hands that I've got, hands, hand of cards uh, that I've got. And so let me just add Jesus and he's just one more of all these gods that I'm kind of holding on to. Even though Jesus says, I'm the only God, it doesn't matter. Contradiction doesn't matter. I'll add it to it, and I've got all of these, this array. And so Ravi Zacharias grew up in that world. He's a Christian philosopher now, and he was lecturing at this school. And a guy that didn't grow up in the East, you know, I think he grew up in San Francisco or something like that. It was like San Francisco City College or something. It was a philosophy professor, and he said, you know, what you Christians have wrong is that you can't hold to a both-and system of logic. And Ravi Zacharias said, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, you guys have it wrong because you're locked in this either-or way of thinking, and you really need to embrace a both-and system of logic. And Ravi says, well, let's have lunch, and you can talk to me about it. So the story goes, as Ravi Zacharias tells the story, they go to lunch, and this city college philosophy professor sits down and starts writing on napkins. And he's drawing diagrams, and he's, he's mapping it all out. You need to believe in a both-and system of logic. And Ravi Zacharias just didn't say anything. He just was eating his sandwich. Um, eating, eating, and about 20 minutes went by and he um, finished his sandwich. He put down his fork and he looked at the philosophy professor who hadn't taken a breath yet and he said this to him. He said, so let me get this right. Either I believe a both-and system of logic or I'm wrong. <laughs> and, and the guy just kind of stopped, sat back, and he said, well, I guess that's a problem, isn't it? You know, and, and so... So Ravi Zacharias kind of went on and, and, and yeah, taught him, yeah, that is, that is a problem. Um, but here's what I think is going on. I spelled either right, didn't I? I-E-I-T-H-E-R? Doesn't look right. Um, I think that we're in a country that is in love with both and logic. Um, I both don't have money, um, but I, I also have buying power with my credit card. Um, and I think we try to have our cake and, and eat it too. And we won't allow a contradiction to come in. And we will fight to make it all come true. This and this. Both this and this. And so what we do with Christ's truth claims is we try and add it into everything else we've got in our life. It's just one more item on the salad bar of all the things I value and that I'm putting into my life. And this is the thing that rocked me when I was exploring the claims of Christ and I was at age 22 was reading the Bible was I read the stuff that Jesus was saying and here's, here's what I realized. I was like, man, this doesn't sound anything like the preaching I heard growing up. 
it doesn't sound anything like the, pre the preaching I heard growing up was, was people begging me, just make a decision for Christ. Just, just raise your hand. Just say this prayer. I mean, all you got to do is muster up the energy to come to the front of the stage. Please, 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 please. Um, you need to do this. Um, please, please. It, nothing else matters as long as you walk to the front of the stage because there's magic fairy dust down here. And, and nothing else matters. Just do this. And that was what I heard growing up. And it's, you know, I was just like, they're begging, and you know, why is it that big of a deal if people are begging? You know? And so I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. And when I read Jesus' truth claims, the stuff in the Gospels, all of a sudden I was like, man, this is hardcore. This guy's radical. Like He accepts nothing less than an absolute commitment to himself. It freaked me out. And I all of a sudden realized, man, what the preachers are saying is over here, and what Jesus is saying is over here, and they're two totally different things. And they don't jive. And so when we planted Antioch, we did something that, like, I think breaks all the rules of whatever church plant books there are or whatever. The series that we started with at the Regal was called Come and Die. I mean, how's that for, like, winning people, you know, like, got a really exciting church. This week we're going through Come and Die. Um, would you please come along, you know? And, and uh, we went through this thing called Come and Die. Jesus says, unless you give up your life, you can't find your life. You've got to die to yourself. And so we started that way. And says, we've got, I said, we've got to get this one thing right. It's not about ourselves. We've got to get this one thing right that's not about ourselves. It's got to be a part of our DNA as a church. And so we jumped a couple months later into missions, even though that was ridiculously foolish. We were only like getting a, a, you know, this much in the offering basket on, uh, every week. You know, and, and we're like, hey, this is a great time to do missions. So we jump into missions because it's, it's not about us. We started going that way. And there's some amazingly cool things happening um, with a partnership with World Relief and some other things that I'm going to try and share about when I get back from Africa. And it's absolutely mind-blowing to me. And what I've realized is those things that are happening to Antioch now just into our first year, our, our first full year, wouldn't have happened had we not been willing to sell it all and just sell out for Christ early on. Does that make sense? God couldn't have brought these blessings if we hadn't have just jumped in back then. Okay, but we, we don't like to do that. We don't like to have to choose between the two. And, but, but there's no getting around it. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. I mean, have you really wrestled that one to the ground? You, you can't both play by the world's rules and play by God's rules and try and win it both. We hedge our bets sometimes, don't we? We, we like want to say yes to God. I think this is where um, Judas was, to be honest with you, but I, I've found myself doing this. Let me say yes to God, but what would happen if I died and there was no God? Well, I'd wanna ha I, wanna, I would want to have lived this life where I got everything too, so let me say yes to God, and maybe that'll get me into heaven. Okay, that one's done. I can set that to the side. So now let me go pursue all these other things so that I can check off the check boxes. And then no matter what happens, I've hedged my bets, I win. If there's no God, I win. If there is a God, I win. And we play that game as Americans, don't we? And we don't just sell out and say, you know what, there is a God. I talk to him. I pray to him. He meets me there. He, he opens doors for me to go through life. You know, I mean, he, he blesses me when I obey him, and he disciplines me when I don't obey him. And there is no if. It's, it's faith and, and yes. And I'll sell all that other stuff. I'll let go of it. I won't try and hold on to it. But we play this game. We play this game. 
Um, Jesus says in, in the letter to the church in Revelation, he says, um, if you were cold or hot, that'd be one th- at least there'd be something there. But as it is, you're lukewarm, and there's no use for lukewarm water, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And so we straddle the fence. We get caught in this gray area, and we just don't, um, we don't choose. So let's read that passage again if you turn back to, to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Let's read it one more time. I think it will be on the screen too. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. Not that you can buy on a credit card and add to what you already have, but when you find it, you hide it and you run away excitedly and in your joy you sell all that you have and you go and buy that one thing because it's enough. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. It's the thing that we're searching out for already. That deep, 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 deep desire that you have for significance, that you are, it's already your compass and it's guiding you. It's already looking for that thing that you were created for, that meaning and that purpose. And then you find it. You find that pearl of great price. And when you find that one of great value, you go and you sell everything else and you go back and buy that one thing that you were made for. My daughter, uh, well, I, you know, a lot of things in my family have been teaching me that both and logic doesn't work. So let me show you how that works. I, I learned in Portland on Wednesday that you can't both go to Hannah, Montana with 3D glasses on and junior hires all around you singing the words and still be cool. Okay? I really crossed a threshold this week in my life, and I'm now middle-aged and, and completely uncool. Um, and I'm, I'm still processing that through. I'm going to therapy, actually. Um, my daughter is a great test uh, case in the fact that I think lack of knowledge and immaturity allows you to try and play the both-hand game. So here's what Esther told me this week in the car. Um, she's decided she's going to be an astronaut, and she's going to be able to fly up to the moon all the time on her rocket ship. Um, and I kind of chuckled, and, and Esther's always, every week, a new thing, right? So I said, oh, okay, Esther, so does that mean you're not going to be a cowgirl and live in Prineville anymore? You know, because that's another one of the things. Um, and I've tried to counsel her out of that a lot. Um, <laughs> but she says, oh, no, I'm going to be a cowgirl and live in Prineville, too. And I said, oh, really? And then she, like, I kind of paused, and she said, and I'm still going to be the kind of doctor that rides around in the ambulance, too. And I just kind of was like, you know, I just chuckle, and, and I thought, okay, I can either explain to her for 10 minutes that, she's, that that doesn't work that way, and she needs to grow up. Um, and then I decided that's not the way to handle it. So I said, Esther, that's great. You're going to make a great cowgirl um, and a great doctor, and you're going to make a great astronaut. Because I know that, as she grows older and matures and learns that life will teach her that she can't be both this and that. I mean, an astronaut and a cowgirl in Prineville are mutually exclusive, contradictory pursuits in life. Um, and she'll learn that. And I think if there's any one thing I, I think Christ would be pleading with us this morning is, is he'd be saying, look... I know you mean well, but you need to grow up. You need to mature. 
And you need to learn more information so that you really will stop thinking that you can go sin. You can lead a small group if you're a single person and be trying to find women to sleep with and be a Christian. Or the, the, that you can't come to just church on a Sunday morning and be a Christian and make your whole life around worldly pursuits and getting more and getting more and getting more. That you can't have sin and Christ too. And I think Christ would be pleading with us and saying, I don't want to break you. I don't want to demoralize you. I don't want to whatever. But truth is truth. Contradictions are contradictions. And I'm calling you to come follow me. And inherent in that is that you have to let go of the other stuff. And I know what's better. And if you just stop and think and learn and grow up, you'll know what's better too. But that's the question. That's what you have to deal with. Just like the rich young ruler, you're just wasting your time if you're asking other questions. Here is the point of the matter. And you need to make a decision. And we don't make a lot of decisions in the Christian world. And I've learned this, that I can talk to people about volunteering all day long. People will volunteer for everything under the sun. But until they make a commitment, they are never going to put in one hour of work. It's all talk until they make a decision and they make a commitment that says, I am going to show up, I am going to do this, I've got ownership of it. And when they make that commitment, when they make that decision, they serve. If they don't make that decision, nothing ever really happens. And so on this side, we've got away from God. And on this side, I think we've got with God and being the Christian. And in the middle is this gray area of talk. And we talk a lot about spiritual things and about following Christ and about what our hopes and dreams are and about all these other things. And, and I think we need to realize that, that Jesus is saying, time out. Are you coming or not? You can't stay in the gray area. Are you coming or not? Are you going to choose? Are you going to make a decision? Are you going to make a commitment to accept what I'm offering? Let go of this other stuff. Trust me that I know what's best and follow. Are you going to do that? And until that moment happens in our lives, we're just caught in this gray area and, and nothing's really happening. That's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is saying that our own human striving is not going to be the strategy of pursuing life. Rather, on faith, we're going to let go of our own striving and walk in submission to God. That's the gospel. Baptism shows that. We get people out, we don't baptize them because it's some weird-looking, socially irrelevant thing that people can point at us and say, wow, weird Christians. And we like being weird, so let's baptize people. That's not it at all. It's this amazingly rich symbol of, and Paul uses the imagery. He says, you're dying to yourself, your old self, and you're raising up, when you're coming out of that water, a new person in Christ. You're dying to self and living for Christ. And the water was always the symbol of washing and cleansing, and purity. And so you're symbolically and ceremonially saying, you know what, I am publicly declaring it's not me anymore. I'm dying to that. And I'm raising up, and I'm going to follow Christ. That's what I'm grabbing hold of. It's the one thing I'm hanging on to. Everything else I can forsake, period. I love what C.S. Lewis puts in his autobiography. He, 
His autobiography is called Surprised by Joy because he found that the meaning and the significance that he was looking for his whole life, when he finally threw that away and grabbed onto God, all of a sudden that joy that he'd been looking for his whole life was there. Okay? Because we were made to be in relationship with God, and when we find that, it's when it all clicks and starts working. So C.S. Lewis's autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. And the chapter about his conversion is called Checkmate. It's called Checkmate. I love that. I mean, maybe no one plays chess. Okay, this is really cool. Okay, maybe you've seen chess, but follow with me. Lewis calls it Checkmate. God has backed me into a corner. And with man, it's, it's not possible. With God, it's possible. And he's backed me into a corner. He's checkmated me. I'm going to have to leave everything and accept him and grab onto him and hold onto him and be found in him and pursue that. He's checkmated me. Nothing else is left. He's taken away all the other options, all the other possibilities. The gray area is no longer on the table. I'm checkmated. And, and so I just would leave it there this morning. Oh, has God put you in checkmate? Is God trying to put you in checkmate? Are you willing to let God put you in checkmate? Are you willing to actually make a commitment or a decision once and for all and say, this is it. From this point on, it's different. doesn't matter what I have to throw away. doesn't matter what I have to give away. doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to hang on to this one thing that is more important than all the other things. If that's you this morning, um, then maybe as they're singing the offertory, you can just talk to God about that. And you just tell him, you know what, I'm weak. You've got to step in here, God. With you, this is possible. If I was just doing this on my own, it's just too big. You just tell God that, but I surrender. Checkmate. Game over. You win. I'm following you. Period. I'm selling it all to grab that pearl of great price. Let's pray. Father, um, we don't have to make you desirable. You are desirable. We don't have to try and dress you up. We just need to stop long enough to see you as you really are, that you're all loving, that you are love, that you're wrapped in grace and you're wrapped in strength, yet you tenderly as a father want to reach down and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, we want to see you the way you really are and we want to be compelled to grab hold of that no matter what the cost. We don't want to play games. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to do futile things with our life. We want the meaning and significance that can only come in finding you and being found in you. Give us the strength to commit, to not just talk, but to commit and make a decision. And Father, we just commit that to you in Christ's name. Amen.